Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Hey, did you see that Squarespace Super Bowl ad? Pretty fancy. Squarespace offers a huge range of customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from, along with a wide array of style options so you can make your site look just how you want it to look. Also, big news. Squarespace has just launched Logo, a new service that helps you build, you guessed it, your own professional logo. It will look incredible. Check it out. Squarespace is simple to use. But hey, if for any reason you need help, Squarespace has a world-class support team at the ready 24-7. And remember, folks, these people work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. Say it with me now, the Care Bear Lair. Packages start at just 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience, so the overall style of your website will be consistent and your content's going to look great on every device every time. Let's do this, you guys. Start a trial right now, no credit card required, and start building your website. Visit squarespace.com, and when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code other people. Again, that offer code is other people. You do that, you get 10% off. Go to squarespace.com right now and take advantage of this terrific offer. It's the very best way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me in a room with a microphone. This is you in a room with some speakers. It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I'm going to start today with some mail. I, uh, I got some email from a listener uh, I got one email from a listener named Brent who says, Hey, Brad, I love the show. I'd be lying if I said I listened to every single episode, but I listened to probably 70% of them. I try to listen more, but the great thing about your show is that it captures people in a really genuine way, and that's the thing with people. Some of them 
you like listening to and some you don't. I only stick with the episodes where the people interest me right off the bat, uh, but I love all the episodes that I really listen to. I can't tell if that's an awkward amount of forthrightness. So let me uh, interject here. I don't think that's awkward. That's not too much forthrightness, in my opinion. I can handle that. Uh, The truth is that I think most people listen to podcasts uh, and or uh, radio programs in much the same way. Uh, For example, I love Howard Stern. Do I listen to every single uh, Howard Stern show uh, all four hours? Uh, No, of course not. I listen when I can, and I especially listen uh, when he's interviewing someone. Because that's what I love the most about uh, Howard Stern, is when he interviews people. So uh, Brent continues, Anyway, I'm really interested in the idea of co-branding that you seem to come back to occasionally. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the line between co-branding and just finding people that you think are interesting and deciding that you want to be friends with them. So uh, let me uh, let me intrude once again. When I talk about co-branding, what I'm referring to in particular, uh, you know, in, in, within this context, I'm, I'm referring to authors on, say, social media or in real life at, like, readings and so on. Uh, who attempt to quote-unquote befriend or strategically place themselves uh, in the company of writers or other artists whom they think will advance their cause. But they're not explicit about that part of it. (laughs) And, you know, I I realize that this kind of insight might emerge from a cynical worldview. I don't want to be too gloomy or too uh, down on people. I'm just saying that sometimes I notice this. I notice online authors being nice to other authors on Twitter or something, tagging them in conversation, post, uh, posting photographs of themselves in said author's company or what have you, in an effort, I believe, to uh, somehow enhance their public image and to suck some vital life force from the, author, uh, the other author's quote-unquote brand. <laughs> you guys understand what I'm saying? Am I making any sense? So, uh, some more from uh, Brent. Anyway, I guess the difference between trying to be friends and co-branding is mostly a matter of whether you know when to call it a day. I guess a clear difference is that somebody, uh, someone's obviously a co-brander if they're one of those shamelessly self-promotional tweeters. But what if it, that's just their thing on Twitter? They're genuinely trying to connect somehow, to get past those careering self-imposed limitations and reach out to humanity. So, okay, listen, I get it. I get it. I really do. This is a gray area. It's not black and white. Just like most, you know, most everything is not black and white. It's complicated. And I should also say uh, that I do this or have done this in the past, which is why I think about this. I mean, for God's sake, look at this show. I'm co-branding with every author who's on this program. Uh, to some degree, or in some sense. It's unavoidable. But, uh, you know, what I don't like about it uh, is how it can uh, at times make uh, human relationships feel, uh, you know, like when I witness like really explicit demonstrations of it, or what I perceive to be really explicit demonstrations of uh, naked (laughs) co-branding. It just makes human relationships feel transactional. Co-branding the desire to co-brand, it's a hard impulse to resist. Many of us, I think, do it subconsciously, especially on social media. Like, for example, you might see an indie author 
uh, engaging in friendly uh, or, in, or attempting to engage in friendly banter with an author who happens to live higher up on the food chain. So that, you know, the indie author's Twitter followers will see this and think to themselves, my God, would you look at that? Uh, they're friendly. And perhaps this causes the two brands to be conflated in the minds of the followers. Or, you know, it could work in reverse. There's an author who's really high up on the food chain, uh, but who is feeling uh, maybe too high up or, or too uncool. And so he or she might co-brand with somebody who's got a, like serious indie street cred in an effort to somehow en enhance their uh, indie cred. <laughs> so if you're confused, let me try to give you a, an illustration of how this works. And I'll do it uh, in the context of the music industry, just because this comes to mind. Uh, so just the other night, there, you know, there was the Grammy Awards here in Los Angeles. Perhaps you watched that. Perhaps you saw everybody tweeting about that or something. Uh, the night before the Grammys, right here in Los Angeles, there was a young Canadian musician named Grimes. Grimes. <laughs> She's like Bjork 2.0 to me, just to kind of give you some sort of line of comparison. But Grimes played a uh, show at the House of Blues on the Sunset Strip. And uh, she's in her early 20s, if that. She's very young. And uh, I believe she might be the next big thing or one of the next big things or whatever. That's what they're trying to build up, possibly. And uh, guess who showed up to say hello to Grimes after her show at the, at the uh, House of Blues? Katy Perry and uh, Rihanna. So that's co-branding. Katy Perry and Rihanna... Uh, who already have these, you know, gigantic brands, these this global fame or whatever, they came over to, uh, you know, to the Hollywood, uh, what is it, the, the House of Blues, and they had uh, photographers trailing them. And yeah, you know, nominally speaking, or perhaps genuinely speaking, they were there to be friendly and to wish this young musician well and to be supportive and whatnot. But you know what? The cynical side of me, who's lived in Los Angeles for almost 15 years, thinks that what they were really doing was trying to co-brand with her to get their pictures taken with her uh, so that they could, in effect, suck some vital life force from her brand and use it for their own gain. <laughs> They're like a couple of fucking vampire bats feeding on this young Canadian. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to Brent's email. Uh, his his uh, letter ends... I guess what I'm saying is that your show makes it easier for all of us to feel like a community and to not feel like co-branders because you really bring us in and I don't think co-branders would really let themselves be brought in. I'm rambling, I guess, but have a great night. Sincerely, Brent. So uh, thanks, Brent. I certainly hope that's the case. I want you to be right. <laughs> I, I, I truly uh, want to be uh, genuinely friendly with my guests, with my listeners, with people in general, before I die. <laughs> you know, understanding, of course, that I'm, you know, I'm not going to become best friends with my guests, most likely. Many of them, you know, I talk to them on this show and that's it. I never hear from them again, or they from me. And that's life, you know. But when I am talking to them, uh, I'm trying to be uh, genuinely human and friendly. And if I ever cross paths with them down the road, uh, I would do the same. And yeah, you know, it's great to get guests on this program uh, who reflect well on the program and might help it to uh, get more listeners or what have you. 
And, uh, you know, that's a co-branding situation. Undeniably. Built in. The benefits of co-branding or whatever. But, you know, uh, let's face it. The overwhelming majority of people on this program are completely unknown to those, uh, you know, who exist outside of the literary realm. And uh, the fact is that, we're, you know, we're operating in a relatively narrow channel here. I hate to say that, but we are. You know, we're trying to widen that channel, hopefully. Hopefully this show uh, is reaching people who might be, uh, you know, unfamiliar with the channel. <laughs> Welcome to the channel, if you're new to the channel. It's that thing I've talked about before, you know, literature existing on the periphery, which is perhaps, culturally speaking, where it's meant to exist anyway, but we do want to try to nudge it back towards the center of the conversation in some small way, or in some big way, if, you know, if such a thing is possible. What I'm saying is that I'm trying to be conscious of the co-branding thing. <laughs> ah, it's confusing. I went on a rant on Twitter not too long ago about the virtues of unskillful co-branding, you know, it was somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but also somewhat sincere. I have deep misgivings about people who manage their public image too well or who expend too much energy in that direction. Perhaps this makes me uh, like a self-sabotaging ignoramus. I don't care. I don't care. I want things to be messy. You know? I don't want to have to think about who I'm associating with in the, you know, uh, online or whatever in terms of how it's going to help me. I don't want to, I don't want to have to measure people like that. I want things to be messy. You know what it's like? It's like when somebody's too perfect in their appearance, uh, like their clothes have no wrinkles. There's no lint on their person. The hair is perfect and, and recently cut. The teeth are too white. Oh my God. You know what I'm talking about? How can you ever trust somebody whose teeth are that white? You just can't. That is a skillful co-brander right there. I guarantee it. So my message to you, if there is one, uh, is this unskillful co-branding <laughs> actively work to co-brand in a disastrously messy fashion, embrace all of humanity, resist the temptation to use other people in a disingenuous way for the purposes of your own gain or glory. That is what I'm saying. That is what I'm saying. That's what I think I'm saying. What am I saying? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
My guest today is Kyle Miner. He has a new story collection out from Saraband Books. It is called Praying Drunk, and I'm very pleased to have him here on the program. Uh, I think you're going to like this conversation. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Kyle Miner, and his new book, once again, is called Praying Drunk. Well, I'm in the extended stay America, uh, the airport hotel outside of Indianapolis, and uh, there's a massive snowstorm coming, they say, but out the window it looks pretty clear. Yeah, it's weird. You know, my sister... My sister uh, lives back in... I grew up in Indy, uh, which I was just telling you before we came on the air, and my sister still lives back that way, and they've had a crazy winter in the Midwest. They've been getting buried in snow. It's true. I've been traveling a lot from a book tour, and uh, more than once already, I've been snowed in, and I've had to stay in whatever flea bag motel I can stay in off the interstate. Um it's been terrible, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm living in a nightmare currently. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, um, good things and bad things at the same time. I mean, I, I've i had uh, the experience of, like, sleeping on a private jet, and I've also had the experience of sleeping in a Shell Station parking lot. Wait, you've, s- you've slept on a private jet? Yeah. <laughs> when was this? Was, it, was this on a book tour? <laughs> No, it was just, just a little while ago. Somebody wanted me to come out to talk about a uh, movie thing, and I ended up sleeping on a private jet. Okay, so wait a minute. Let's get into this. Somebody wanted to come out where? To Los Angeles? Yeah. So somebody wanted you to... Things, these, things, these things come up, you know, like from time to time, TV things, movie things, and then what usually happens is nothing, you know? Um, somebody just... Sometimes it gets real far. Um, like right now, I'm working on a a different thing, which is a a TV uh, pilot thing that's uh, that's with a uh, a producer that's in Nashville and director in LA. I've never made really any money for it, although I have signed over an option for it. And you know, I've done multiple drafts of things. I've done um, treatments for thirteen episode first seasons for six and eight hour miniseries. Um, I've done. Uh, I've done a 60-minute pilot uh, script. Um, And, you know, the news kind of trickles in when you do these. You never really know exactly what to believe. Um, But you kind of keep trying. I mean, at least I keep trying because um, I live so far away from Los Angeles, and it's something that I've always wanted to do, work in TV and movies. So almost every time somebody comes to me and they seem legit, I just say yes, and I, I do this stuff on spec and uh, on the theory that maybe like the 40th time that I try something, it'll work. So, so, so okay, so describe this private jet experience. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna uh, <laughs> to dig into this. Like you wrote... Well, you, I don't, do don't, 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 don't want to get into it too much because like if we start talking about it, then I'm going to start like letting slip who, who the people are. And then well, that's what, that's what I want to know. That's what I want to know. Who sent this to somebody? <laughs> okay, so just like let's get, let's get into the mechanics of this. You wrote something. Somebody read it, wanted to talk to you about it. No, for, for, yeah, for that one, it was just a, it was just an option on something that I had written before. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't written any screenplays or anything. Okay, so what did but they? I feel, what did they opt- I feel already like this interview is getting off on on the on the wrong foot because that's that's really not what my life is like. I mean, that's <laughs> I know, but... that happens one time. I mean, most of the time, I'm I'm like uh, in my car, scurrying from thing to thing. Um, well, my this... schedule right now is like this. I live in Ohio. I live in Maumee, Ohio. 
which is uh, where I kind of got Shanghai'd because I was teaching at the University of Toledo for about six years. And so my family's there. My wife has a job there. And then, um, and then I'm driving to Indianapolis every week to teach at uh, Indianapolis University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, which is the, the most atrociously named university in the world. Right? Actually, yeah, but actually a great place. And then because I'm on my book tour right now, on Tuesdays um, I'm doing drive dates for readings, and then Thursdays and Fridays I'm doing flight dates. Um, coach, right? Usually next to somebody that's had like 14 beers and, you know, they, they weigh much more than I do and take all the armrests and stuff. They're in like a, they're in like a sleeveless t-shirt, you know, like I've gotten that guy before. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I'll get in, I'll get into the ND airport, you know, my flight's usually late and then I'll, maybe I'll leave at like 12 or 1230 at night and I'll drive home and I'll get home depending on the weather, sometime between, you know, 3.30 and 6.30 in the morning, and then I'll sleep for a while. And then, like, last last Saturday, I got up after only a few hours because it was my son's birthday, you know, and uh, I'd already missed it before because I got snowed in. Um, so, yeah, it's crazy. I, I don't – I'm not even sure if I'm uh, making sense the way that I'm talking to you. No, no, it's making sense. I, I think the reason I latched onto the private jet experience is just because it's fun to talk about, and then it's also very unusual. <laughs> Uh, I have I have yeah. yet I have yet to talk to a, a writer on this show. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there. I, I, I should say uh, that I'm I probably have talked to writers on this show who have had a private jet experience, but uh, I just we just has never come up. So uh, you know that's kind of cool. Somebody sent you a jet. Well, of course that's the of course that's the first thing I'll tell you, right? Like we all we all want our lives to be bigger than they actually are. So we so we isolate like the one bit of trouble, <laughs> right? You know, the one exciting thing, right? So, okay. So, how did you get into this racket? Because I, you know, I, I've been reading uh, about you, and uh, you spent time as a preacher earlier in your adult life. Uh, are you originally from the Midwest? I want to get into like how you got to this point. Well, I, I grew up in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, um, and I grew up in kind of a working class. Uh, southern enclave. My life revolved around um, this little Southern Baptist church across the street from the dog track, and um, and then uh, I, I went to this uh, fundamentalist Christian school. From the time I actually started before I was four years old, and I and I graduated from high school there. And all my teachers were educated at like the worst places, you know, Bob Jones University. I was going to say, college. yeah. Oh um, okay. so our curriculum, like we, we had to memorize Bible verses, you know, every week we had to go to chapel. We wore, uh, uniforms. Um, we we're very enamored of like a 19th century British colonial education. You know? I don't even know what that is though. What, what 19th century British colonial education was that very steeped in evangelical Christianity? It was real classist and it was real, um, uh, white, the the view of the world. Um, some people have later speculated because because that school was founded in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, and some people have speculated that a lot of those kind of schools, the the biggest unarticulated reason that they were founded was to keep white kids from being in school with black kids. Um, I I think also there's a, a fear of poverty and and. Uh, you know the, the social problems that come with it, but there definitely was a 
kind of a racist component to it, and it you could feel it uh, around in that place in that time, too. And of course, you know, we belong to the Southern Baptist Church, which split from the Northern Baptists over the issue of slavery, and that stuff, stuff hadn't gone away by the time I was a kid. So we were in this disposition of uh, living in a neighborhood that was rapidly uh, becoming, you know, more multiple. I mean, a, a lot of people were coming in from Cuba and Central America because this was South Florida. Um, a lot of Haitian families, um, and of course, you know, the 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 worlds that I lived in, and institution-wise, didn't reflect that diversity at all. So um, sometimes I feel like I I missed out on on uh, a lot of the good things that were happening um, because of that. My God! Okay, um, do, you, was, do you come from yeah. a big family? No, real small. Um, I just have one brother, um, and, and that's it. Okay. So, and and how? I mean, I guess when you're a kid, you buy into whatever you're you're exposed to. I mean, you know, especially when you're very young. So, um, like, how deep did uh, this faith get its hooks into you. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, well, it, it, it sounds like based on what I know that you've moved away from it as you've gotten older. Um, but what was it like for you as a child? Well, you know, it's the only thing that I knew. So I just bought in 100%. Um, I lived in fear of it too. I mean, these, these traveling preachers would come to town and, and they would, they would tell you crazy things, you know, they play Beatles records backwards, you know, like, um, remember one time they played this video of Tomorrow Never Knows backward, and it was supposed to say, um, he is the nasty one, Christ, you're infernal. <laughs> they said that these demons had, like, got inside the Beatles while they were recording and and were controlling all of that. And yeah, they said, I, I remember this one guy said um, that uh, these kids watched the movie The Gremlins, and they woke up the next morning and they had claw marks up and down their arms because actual demon gremlins had infiltrated them through the movie. <laughs> oh, my God. So, I had seen that movie. So I was, you know, I was always worried that I was going to get the claw marks. Right, right. That's a horrible, <laughs> that's a horrible thing to tell children. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so uh, this sounds a little bit strange and uh, a little bit scary to me. I mean, and, and I, you know, I have some... Um, exposure to this. My family's from the South. I feel like, uh, well, you know, the Southern Baptist thing, like you were saying, you know, that's its own beast and there's a certain geography to it. But, um, as you got older, uh, like how did you relate to it in like, say adolescence? Did you continue to, to believe or were you like, when did you start to harbor doubt? Well, I didn't harbor doubt at all, uh, in, in, uh, Christianity in the broadest sense. But I started to um, I started to be unhappy with uh, the, the specific places, the, the manifestations that I was in around. The first thing that happened was in the fifth grade, I had this teacher who was lauded as a Cold War hero. She was East German. She was pretty old. And the story, which I've never been able to verify, but the story that everybody had on her, and it'd be in the school newspaper and stuff, was that she had escaped from East Berlin uh, right before the Berlin Wall went up. So back when it was just like razor wire and there were some places you could get through. Right. And she did it by swimming the Spree River three times in the cold that should have killed a person. But she was a champion swimmer, each time with an elderly relative on her back. So she's going back and forth. <laughs> and and uh, she was 
she was the worst, man. I mean, she wore white gloves and she would run them down our desks to see if there's any dust. She made us have these dust pans and she'd do shoe inspections. And uh, my dad um, was an air conditioning man and he had installed the compressors outside our classroom. And I remember one time being so, feeling so violated because she I was real little and she shoved me up against the compressors and we'd just done the catechism, which is the only class we did it in. What is God? God is love, all that stuff. And she said, surely God wouldn't love a child like you. And I was, and I was, I remember thinking like my dad put this air conditioning compressor in and you're pressing me up again. Oh yeah. my God. So and what she means. So that said, was the first one. Yeah. That sounds awful. I mean, and like I'm, I'm imagining it with like an, uh, a German accent, <laughs> which makes yeah. it, which makes it like doubly menacing somehow. So um, okay. Well, uh, what about your folks? Like, were your folks obviously into this as well? Well, it's weird because, um, they, they're still, you know, they're still involved in, in, uh, religious communities. I don't think that they bought the most extreme stuff, but also they would, they wouldn't have a distance from it either. And they would go to it anyway. And they'd get angry if you push back too much. Hmm. Um, so, so I, I never really understood. I mean, when I got older and I started writing about it, there, there were problems for sure. Um, they're still, I don't think, very happy that that I chose to do that. Um, it seems like, a, in some way, you know, a violation of the community, like you told the secrets or something. Well, yeah, I mean, but like, what are the, you know, what are the secrets? I mean, I feel like people. I mean, I feel like most people. Well, I, guess I shouldn't say that, but I feel like I have a sense of what goes on in an evangelical community. Uh, I mean, are there certain things you revealed specifically that you're not supposed to reveal? Well, I think there's two things going on with it. I mean, one thing is that um, just t- just telling those kind of stories in a way that's not hagiographic or um, it's not... Um, it's not the version everybody wants to to have, you know, the community version. Um, nobody likes that anywhere, you know. Um, so writers are always getting in trouble for that, and there's some of that going on. The other piece of it is that um, there is always this sense that that art was suspect, movies were suspect. Um, we had to do a, a play one time, a musical play. And the, the theme song of it was um, was input output, and and it was sung around this robot whose theme was what goes in is what comes out. And uh, the idea was like you should never put anything dark inside yourself because it'll come out in darkness. And the consequence of that is that you never get to tell the truth about anything because the world is full of darkness, you know. Um, so there's this like oppressive insistence on uh, positivity. But what it really was, was just, um, here's the story, here's the version of the story of how the world is, and your job is just to conform to that forever. Well, yeah, okay, this brings up, this this brings up interesting questions for me, because, um, I remember growing up, I had friends or relatives who, you know, their parents were very strict about what the kids got to watch, and there was no TV in the house, and... They couldn't listen to contemporary music and things like that because, you know, it was, it was toxic. And, uh, you know, as a young person, I remember feeling like that was totally ridiculous. And to an extent, I think it, it, I continue to think that way because I don't think you can 
I don't think it's healthy, and I don't think you really can insulate people from the world unless you're really living off the grid. I mean, at some point, you're going to come into contact with it, I would imagine. So uh, there's that side of me, okay? But then there's also the side of me that as I get older, um, you know, there's a part of me that kind of agrees with that uh, in terms of what we take in. You know, like toxins aren't just chemical. Like you can overdose on like online news or social media or just any kind of media. You know, you go to see a really dark, twisted movie, uh, it, it's going to depress you terribly. And if you go see a funny movie, it's going to do something to you. And so there is a part of me that's like, you know what? I want to be more conscious about what I take in so that um, I don't feel like shit. You know, <laughs> like, uh, but I also, yeah. but I don't, I don't want to like censor, you know, I think that like, 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 like you, I, I believe that there's a lot of darkness in the world and I think that art needs to address it. And I certainly think there's a place for, um, that kind of art. And, you know, there's a, a part of me that will always go to it to try to understand, but I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like we do need to be more conscious of what we yeah. bring into our bodies through our sense organs, you know? I, I, I hear what you're saying. I guess, um, for me, because, um, I spent, you know, my whole childhood, um, with that constantly being policed. And then also, you know, there's a, there's an internal policeman that gets let loose inside you because, because, uh, also there's a doctrine in, uh, in fundamentalist Christianity, which is if you, if you think the thing, it's the same as having done the thing, you know? So, so you're instructed to spend your whole life policing your, your interior life so much. And, uh, ultimately I guess I think I've had enough of that for my whole life. And it's not a thing that I, that I want to spend like five minutes of my day ever again, worrying about very much. So I guess, um, when it comes to, to, uh, art and, and movies and books and things, I just have the most uh, libertine attitude, which is whatever, anything. I don't. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So are you? Are you? Are you? Like having been there and having um, rebelled against that and moved away from it. Like, do you? Are you angry? Like, does it anger you that you were raised with this kind of ideology? Um, you know, are you angry at the teachers that you had for teaching you this stuff? Or, or you know, be, for having to live in such a restricted environment? I think I've been angry, um, but I mean, I'm, I'm 37 years old now and, uh, I spent, you know, 10 years writing about these things very, very close to the bone. And I think, um, I moved from anger into a, a softer preoccupation and now I feel, um, some distance from it. I mean, I don't feel the things I'm writing now really aren't consumed with uh, with those things in the way that say that many of the stories in praying drunk and, and the devil's territory are are consumed with them, um, and I think that um, I think that writing about them so intensively for such a long time was a way to to get some distance on it. But I mean, you know, things come up and and I and I feel that flare up for sure, and that's probably just something that's going to stay with me for the rest of my life because. Um, things that happen to you when you when you're a child are the things that um the, the that are never going to not be a part of who you are. Well sure, sure. I mean, do you, did you was there ever a situation 
Um, I mean, I guess like that one, the German teacher pushing you up against an air compressor and telling you that God would never love a child like you. That's, that's abuse. I mean, that crosses the line yeah. in my mind. Like, were there other situations where you felt like people crossed the line into like a, abusive behavior? Well, it got really bad in the seventh and eighth grade. Um, I just had the shit beat out of me every day. I was the smallest kid there. I didn't hit puberty till I was almost 14. Um, and you know, the, the other dominant things in, in, in that, the other dominant thing in that world was a, a very Southern inheritance, you know, a macho kind of violent thing. Um, and I think that marked me more than anything else. I mean, I don't really think I started dealing with that in a significant way until I was, um, in the, you know, in grad school for the second time at Ohio state and started writing about it. And when I did start writing about it, um, I realized how much I had pushed it down because I felt so much. I mean, I was, uh, you know, 24, 25, 26 years old, and I could feel full of the the emotions that you feel when you're 13. Um, and that was a little bit scary, you know. Um, where where was this happening? You were getting beat up like what, on, on the way to and from school or? At school. At yeah, school. In the locker room, yeah. You know, behind buildings. Um, sometimes people would, would wait for me um, and sort of, the, the blind alleys of the school and in groups. Um, there was a ringleader, uh, just one kid who was a sociopath. He, I saw him on Cops. He's a cop now. <laughs> He's a member of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office Gangbusters Unit. And oh, I saw him God. doing the same thing to a like a crackhead in uh, Riviera Beach that he used to do to me. Same look on his face. He was just uh, bigger and a little fatter, you know. But he had on cop armor. <laughs> Wow. So it was, that that was no surprise. I just I saw that and I was like, well, that's how the world is. You My know? God. So I mean, that's awful though. And it was was it really just him yeah. who was spearheading this? I mean, or was it? Yeah. That was it. So he just he was yeah. he was your tormentor all throughout, like junior high. No, it stopped. Um, it stopped at a certain point in the eighth grade because I had a uh, a lifelong friend who came to school who was the biggest kid in our class. Um, and, uh, he, he, uh, he saw a kid. It wasn't even the same kid. The kid that was, that was messing with me that time was a junior in high school and was his cousin. And he saw that happening and he picked him up and slammed him against the lockers and made it known that it was going to end. And that was pretty much the end of it. You it's, know? it's a good, so it's, good I, it's good to have a friend who's the biggest kid so, in the school. <laughs> yeah. But it was just another affirmation of the code, right? You know, might make right, right. The force wins. Right. And that, that's how that place worked. Well, but you know, it's funny. I, I think I might've even said this on this show before, but like when you think about the pecking order in school and the way that it all works out, Dar, you know, from a Darwinian perspective, like, you know, like I remember like, like popularity among boys and the, you know, it, it's determined by like who can run the fastest and who's like the strongest. And it's so strange, yeah. you know, like, you know, like whether or not you're like a, a, a nice human being or you have anything uh, interesting to say really falls into like a secondary position. It's just like, can you run fast? And then, then all of a sudden everybody sort of falls into line based on that. Or at least that's the way that it worked in my school, you know, as I recall. And it, and it kind of held too, you know, and then. Um, those, those sorts of positions reinforce themselves as the years go on. 
you know, I guess there's some mobility, but it sort of establishes itself at an early age and, and then just kind of holds, or at least that's the way it was in, in my school in Indiana. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I don't, I'm not in school now, so I don't know what it's like. And my suspicion is that you're probably right in the broadest sense. And then there's probably some places where it's, it's less true. And I hope that my children end up in places like that. Yeah, no know. kidding, right? Yeah, because yeah. my kid, my kids are not going to have foot speed. <laughs> uh, <that's laughs> yeah, mine don't. Pretty much a guarantee. I've never even seen my wife run ever. Like uh, I just have never like she. I don't even. I don't even know if she can run. <laughs> uh, and I'm <laughs> extremely slow. So um, anyhow, so with regard to um, writing, like were you writing in high school? Like as all of this was, you know, as you were still in this environment, or is this something you came to later? Well, um, I, 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 I mean, I can remember a few times that I tried to write some things. I had a, a poem in the school newspaper. Um, I was the editor of the high school year, yearbook, although not a very good one, not a very good editor. <laughs> uh, but uh, I was always interested in it, although what I was more interested in was journalism and, and radio. Um, and I, I didn't really read literature. I read... I think I, I could I could probably name every work of literature I read before I was uh, you know 22 years old. I mean I read I read uh, The Sound and the Fury and The Old Man and the Sea and a couple of Dickens novels and Huckleberry Finn. And that's it. All like and all based cool. on all based on school assignments. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean I did read voraciously, but it, it wasn't it wasn't that stuff. I mean for one thing I didn't even really know about it much. I thought literature was just a bunch of old creaky stuff. That, that that I didn't really have any any particular affinity for. Um, I mean, I did read like uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and, and and things like that. Well, sure. the The Christians love C.S. Lewis. I know that. Yeah, um, and and you know, I mean, uh, I, what I really like to read, I like to read books about you know football. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I like to read biographies. I remember that, and I read a lot of magazines too. Yeah, uh, but I just didn't know. Uh, what happened was um, after I after I was a failed uh, pastor, which which didn't take very long. Okay, so how did you uh, let's, how did you get to be a pastor? Was this right after high school? Well, I went. I I just I thought that's what I, I was supposed to do with my life. So I went to college with the intention that that's what I was going to do, and I took classes. You know. Um, and I had really good teachers, and that's sort of what undid it, because I took these biblical studies classes, and they were serious classes, and I learned about like how the canon was formed, and it, and I realized, oh, a bunch of people just got together and made choices, you know, and they had uh, political considerations attached, and there were competing factions, and this is like everything else in the world. And I took philosophy classes, and I learned about formal logic, and I saw how so many of the things that I had built my idea of the world around were based on just circular logic, you know, um, like how, how do I know that the Bible is the true and inerrant word of God? Cause the Bible says so. Well, how do I know that what the Bible says is true when it says so? Cause the Bible says so, you know what I mean? Sure. Um, so where did you go to school? Where was this at that you were get, taking these good classes? It was, at, it was at, uh, Anderson university in Indiana. No kids. Okay. So you went to Anderson university yeah. in Indiana. Uh-huh. How did you wind up there? And I, I followed a girl up there, 
and uh, we didn't stay together for another day after that. <laughs> it's a common story, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It was affiliated with uh, with the church that I had gone to uh, to kind of flee the Baptist. It was a little more moderate, and uh, it was good. It was like a it was like a um, gateway drug to the rest of the world, you know. But they did. But, but but they didn't intend to be. That wasn't their intention, right? When you were going there, like you're into, like, did the school like like? Do you feel like the school accidentally performed as a gateway drug, or was that was it a free thinking enough place that they would be proud of you of um, that moniker? Do you know what I'm saying? I think that they had a they had a commitment to to uh, serious intellectual inquiry and. And and when you do that, you, you always run the risk that people will will take that uh, and run with it in the way that I did, you know. And I, that that's that was true of a lot of people. And uh, it was always a, a a political firestorm with regard to the donors at the school and stuff because there was always the the, the two competing factions. There was the faction that said, uh, if it, you know if things are true in the world or if if uh, if things are the way they are, then then you deal with that. And then there was a faction that said this place exists to serve uh, the institution and, and stuff. And, you know, um, I think I think that at that place, those tensions are still present. And I, I feel fortunate. I mean, I didn't go to like a Bible college where, you know, I, I wouldn't have gotten a, a good education. I just would have gotten an indoctrination. Yeah. Um, so it was it was uh, it was one of the luckiest things that ever happened because I really wasn't making the choice based on things like that. I was making the choice based on this girl was going to go there, my my best friend was going to go there, you know, things like that. Wow! And so when did you when did the can you point to a specific moment when, um, you know, the, the thing started to to split open for you and you started to have second thoughts and really see the world differently. Well, it just took a long time, and it was a gradual process. And when I graduated, I went back to the church that I had uh, been in in high school, and I became an associate pastor there. And I think that's when it when the wheels really started to come off, because um, because now I was forced to be the person in that role so often, and I had to confront the the, the things that that my education had started to stir up. I remember one time they sent me to a hospital and there was a woman there and she was dying and she was almost dead. I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't coherent. Her, her, um, her whole body had swelled to the point that I don't think she was recognizable. And I didn't know her and I, I didn't know anybody that knew her. And as I walked in there to do whatever it was I was supposed to do, I thought, why am I, why am I here? This woman could die in five minutes. Why should I be the last person that she hears from? And the family member that had called in to ask, uh, ask me to go in there was concerned that this woman wasn't a Christian and wanted a proselytizing mission here, you know? And I went in there, and there, there's no way I was going to do that, you know? It was this, the least human, humane thing ever. I, I walked in there. I, I, I held her hand for a while. I didn't say very much. I didn't do very much, and I left. And I was bothered by it for a long time. 
What? So her um, relative, her relative wanted you to go in there and what? Convert her on her deathbed, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was twenty-two. And 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 I mean that that kind of thing. It, it's hard to to put it into words. There's not a a logic necessarily attached to it, but there's a there's a strong feeling inside you that, that like this whole thing is inadequate for for what this is, and and I, it doesn't make sense to me anymore. And then you know, um, on Fridays I would go to the movie theater because that was my day off. And it was a great year for movies, and this is like 1999, 2000. So, I mean, all these great movies that would have been independent films were being made by studios. And that was the year of, like, uh, being John Malkovich and um, Goodwill Hunting had been out not long before that. Magnolia, you know, some, some of these movies that are still some of my favorites. And I remember going in there. I'd go in there, I'd buy, I'd just buy, like, five tickets. I'd buy, like, from the noon show until the late show. And I'd sit in there all day and eat popcorn and watch those movies and feel so much and feel a transcendence I never felt at church hmm. and felt like true things were being communicated in ways that I was increasingly feeling were never happening in the in the settings I was in. And I think that's one of the first times I thought, man, maybe I'd like to do this. You know, maybe I'd like to tell stories in this way. This is my real church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then not long after that, um, I worked briefly in religious publishing because I needed I, just, I needed money and I was looking for a way out. It didn't last long for similar reasons. And I found myself homeless, and I didn't want to move back in with my parents. So I, I lived in my car for a while. And How long, is, met, a, how long is a while? Oh, you, you know, about six months. But um, when you say you live in your car, you know, that means that your car is your default, but you're always finding places to sleep that aren't your car. Right. And this was in you know, Florida. Couches. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least, at least um, and, I, and I met this woman. Yeah. I met this woman who was in a similar position and she came back. She had been a college professor and she was going back to it. And, uh, she was, she was sharing a, um, an 80 square foot house shaped like an octagon with one of her former students. It had been built by a lady to house her like doll collection or something in Babson <laughs> Park, Florida. And and they, they they slept they slept together on a uh, a pull out uh love seat, like a two seater. <laughs> and uh I more or less moved in with them, you know, um, for a little while. And I, I ended up marrying the the one woman. <laughs> And so wait, um, so wait. The, the, the woman, the woman who was the college professor, or the woman who yeah. was the former student. Yeah, okay. yeah. And you're still yeah, married. We're still married. Okay. Yeah, we have two kids. Oh We've been God. married for for more than a decade. Wow. Um, and the way the way that happened was she just she drove down like on New Year's Eve, and I met her up there, and we had a good time, and we were on that that uh, that pullout love seat at you know. After, sometime after midnight, the, the new year, uh, with a space heater under there because it was cold. And I, I think she said, uh, you want to get married? And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> For real? And then we just got, yeah, we just got married like five months after that. Wow. So was this like, a, I mean, is this like a love at first sight thing? Was that, you just knew, I mean, you really knew, or was it that, was it a casual kind of jokey thing? I don't, I don't. I think about it now and it just seems crazy, you know? It it seems like a thing people shouldn't do. 
Al, you know, we've had, we've had a pretty good life together. Yeah. Well, my parents, you know, my parents, uh, they dated for three months and then got engaged and they've been together for 40 something years. So, yeah. I mean, who knows, right? Who knows? So there are people who, uh, there's all different ways to do it. Well, a real turning point, I still haven't got the answer in your question, but here maybe is the answer. Um, the other woman that lived in that house had a shelf of uh, Kurt Vonnegut books, all of them. And I found myself there by myself in the middle of the day with nothing to do, so I started reading them just straight through, like in chronological order. And that stuff blew my mind, you know? I mean, the stereotype of Kurt Vonnegut books is that they blow your mind when you're about 19. And I was older than that, but um, I just had never encountered anything like that. And I was so excited, and I was so sad when I got to the end of it, Hocus Pocus and Time Quake and stuff. Mm. But then uh, I heard that um, that a lot of people who read Kurt Vonnegut books like Don DeLillo books. So I read all those in order. And I did that for a while. I just started reading authors straight through one after the other as one led to the next. And that that's really what opened it up. Um, in, that, really, in, really, in that octagon house? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, the octagon house gave way to to, to more permanent living. Uh, <laughs> we then moved on to a, a rhombus. It was a rhomboid house. With the... Well, I actually lived briefly in a... In a uh, in an old hotel that had once been uh, Al Capone's getaway from the IRS. At, at that time, it had been accessible by amphibious seaplane on Lake Pierce. <laughs> I didn't live there very long. I lived there for about a month. So I lived it, with an a elderly Pakistani woman for about a month. <laughs> it, it, it was a transient time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, so you do this, but you go on this big reading binge. Um, which kind of like splits your head open and and sets you on your writerly course. And how old are you then? You're in your early twenties, mid twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm like twenty three, twenty four by now. And when did you make the decision? Like, I'm going to do this. Well, I mean, what I thought at first I was going to do was be a screenwriter, and I just didn't know how hard it was to get into that. Um. But the but but then you know when I started reading the the books I thought oh well this is this is maybe a more doable thing I could be like a story writer or a novelist or something um, so I, I enrolled in, in in a low residency MA program first just because I couldn't get into an MFA program I mean I wasn't good enough I didn't know anything my grades weren't that great you know from college um, so I, I did that. I did that for two years, and then one of my um, one of my uh, thesis advisors there was Lee K. Abbott, who taught at Ohio State, and he suggested that I apply there and some other places, and I did, and I ended up there. And by the time I got there, I was starting to get rolling. That was like uh, 2004, and that's when I started writing some of the first things that are in this book, actually, in Praying Drunk. Um. Uh, I was just starting to get my legs under me and figure out what it was that I could do and and, and what I was interested in doing. Hmm. And so, yeah. did you did you ever go through like once you started to kind of break away from your um, evangelical roots and, and set out on your own course? Like, 
Did you ever go through any kind of period of an intense rebellion where you were uh, drinking a lot or, or taking drugs and experimenting in that way? Well, by the time I did some of those things, it didn't seem like any kind of intense rebellion anymore because I'd already burned so many of my bridges. You know, I just mm. didn't have anybody much. I, I mean, I didn't thoroughly set everything ablaze until I started publishing books and then, you know, <laughs> then you found out who was still going to stay with you and who wasn't. And, and it wasn't that many people, but, um, you know, I mean, my, my first year at Ohio state, um, it was exciting. I'd never been in a bar scene before. They had this old bar called Larry's that had this mythology, like Bob Dylan used to on his way from Minneapolis to New York, you know, which probably wasn't true. And we'd go there after a workshop every Friday and they had a $1, uh, like tequila slushies, you know, <laughs> like, like, like cheap margaritas and, and uh, plastic cups. And we, we'd drink those until, until it was late. Um, the reason I didn't really push very far into that life is that it wasn't very good for writing. You know, I mean, you do, you drink like that and then you lose that day and then you lose the next day and then you'll feel very good the day after that. And right. then you say to somebody and it pisses them off and, um, then it costs you something, you know, I mean, I, I learned pretty quickly that, that I wasn't gonna, that wasn't going to get me what I wanted, but it was fun. Yeah, well, sure. And, and it sounds like though, I mean, cause this is kind of like an odd, um, point to make, but it may be like your childhood and the, and the faith that you were raised in and like the really, um, extreme level of devotion that it required of you might have in some ways prepared you well for the writing life because it is, and it's, you know, it, it requires discipline and a certain like monasticism, you know, um, or at least yeah, in, in the way that much. I get work done, you know, like you just have to be willing to kind of, um, carve out time and, and stick to it and, um, be very attentive to, um, your physical and mental health. I mean, I, I'm sort of amazed by writers who can, get really boozy and still get work done. You know, like I, I'm the same way. Like if I get super drunk and hung over, like that's two days gone minimally, you know, and I can't tolerate, I don't have time for that. So, uh, do you feel like you were prepared, like prepared in some ways for this life by the life you had as kind of a, an accident of fate? I, I think I was prepared for it in, in two ways that aren't what you said. Um, one is that, you know, I had, I did have a, a, a resource that other people didn't have, which was I had all these stories under my belt, you know, these old archetypal stories um, and, and all the language of the King James Bible and stuff. Um, that turned out to be a, a, a literary resource. And the, the other thing um, I had was I had a, I had a big, um, I had a big pre-existing story to explode and, and, and it, for me, it was a high stakes operation and that really became my project for about 10 years. And I think that's what animated the first two books so much. Um, and it gave me something, something to press against. Um, and you know, that like, like, like these things go, I mean, that wasn't particularly good for my life, but it turned out to be, good for my stories. Hmm. So did you rupture with like, where did your family, I mean, you mentioned that your parents aren't that psyched about you writing about secrets of the church. Like, have you been able to maintain relationships with your family and with people that you grew up with in the church or have, have those relationships gone by the wayside? 
Well, it's been hit and miss. I mean, um, my family's horrified, but they don't understand it. They don't know why I would do it. They don't, you know, I think they think, why wouldn't you write a Disney movie like the kind that we like to watch? That's what people like. They make a lot more money than what you do. You know, what you're doing is not culturally relevant in a Broadway. I mean, that's my language, not theirs. But, you know, it's like, uh, who, who would read these books? Um, and and also, why why would you uh, tell these stories that are so close to to things that actually happen and, and have so much pain in them? Um, so nobody likes it in my family, for sure. And then, um, as far as the other thing, I mean, when my first book came out, I got a lot of letters and emails and stuff from people who were just horrified. And I heard a lot of back channel, too. And a lot of people did just stop talking to me. Or if they did talk to me, it was aggressive. It was um, with the idea that the price of love is correction. You know, so they're going to correct me. And, uh, you know, that gets old fast. Right. So I didn't really want to have to, to deal with that. Now, I, th- there were some surprises. I mean, pretty much every person in my life who turned out to be a closeted gay person is is uh, a better friend now than they were then. Because, <laughs> you know, because we have this thing in common, right? Right. We're... we're we're outcast in this way, sure. um, and and can see and can see what that is. Um, and then you know, and then some people just surprise you, and 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 the, the people that are still in my life from those days, however they come down about what they think about whatever, but I know that they love me. I, I feel I feel gra- a lot of gratitude because you know. When you when you make such a radical shift in in your life, um, and and you in a sense reject and are rejected by what you've come from, um, you feel adrift and you feel it's it's a lonely feeling. Yeah, I'm I'm very jealous. Uh, when I was at the Iowa Writers Workshop, there would be these people whose parents were painters or something, and then they'd go home and they'd talk about their work. I mean. That's a thing that that's never going to happen. No one is proud of me for what I've done, and um, and I feel like uh, I'm proud of you. I, 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 well, thank you, thank you, Brad. <laughs> I think it's proud. I, think it's, I, I, I feel I, like I mean I, that. I think I it takes it. courage, you know. Yeah, yeah. You want it, you know. You 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 want, and then and then you do unhealthy things. You start looking for surrogate parents to tell you that you're okay. You know, you put you you unfairly put your teachers in that role. Or, or or whoever, and so so you have to guard against that too. Um, so yeah, I mean all that stuff. It's uh, it's very complicated. So wait, did you and you, you went you went to Iowa after after Ohio State? Yeah, I, I went there last year and uh, and last summer and did another MFA um, rather quickly. I uh, I just did it out of desperation because I felt like. I needed to to find a more permanent kind of a teaching job, and also because I I wanted I just there's really not anything better in the world than being a grad student, right? To, to be to be around other people who are doing the same thing you were doing, and um, and so last year um, I I kept my full time job at the University of Toledo, but I commuted back and forth. It was an eight hour commute, and it's the best thing I ever did. I had a, I had a great time. And I, I got some good work done, and I made some friends. I'm, I'm really glad I did it. Yeah, that's great, man. So um, in terms of how you work, 
you know, you strike me just listening to you as somebody who's uh, focused and disciplined. Uh, like when you got to Ohio State and you started to to really lock in, um, was it was it right away? You were you're setting like a, a schedule for yourself and and working on a daily basis. Like how do you do it? Well, I mean, right now uh, with the book tour, I'm not getting much writing done at all, you know. Um, but almost every other time over the last you know ten years, I've been trying to work every day. I'm trying to work as many hours as I can every day. For a while, I was getting up real early. You know, I've gone through phases when I was staying up all night a lot. Um, this summer uh, at Iowa, I was away from my family, so I really didn't have anything to do but work. And I was working, you know, 16 or 18 hours a day. Often, I had a couple friends there that would do it, that would uh, work with me at that pace sometimes. Uh, Jen Percy would sit with me um you know, for 10, 12-hour stretches, another writer uh, named Dini Pariatum. And, you know, we'd get each other food when somebody took a break and make sure everybody was healthy and stuff. Um, Where were you guys at? Were you guys, like, in a home or in, like, the library or what? We were... There was a... There was, an, like, a computer lab downstairs uh, in the building, and there was also a... Uh, the Glenn Schaefer Library, which is, like, a, a common room. Um, we'd kind of rotate between those two rooms. Um, sometimes, you know, we'd be in the same room or sometimes we'd get sick of each other and go to the other room. Um, but yeah, um, I was, I wish I could, I wish I could still be living like that in some ways because it, because then, you know, sometimes then you'd be, you'd not hear anybody talk for five hours and then you'd be like, somebody would say, listen to this. And they'd, they'd read you what they were working on and it would be so exciting because it would be good. And you would remember, like, how exciting what you were doing was because the only thing you've been thinking for the last three hours is, like, I don't want to sit in this chair for five more minutes. <laughs> so it gives you a respite. Yeah. So, okay. And, 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 yeah. Okay, so you're, you've been working in the short story form um, so far, but you're working on a novel currently, correct? Yeah, I've been working on a novel for about seven years. It's called The Sexual Lives of Missionaries. And uh, I keep promising people that I'll give it to them like in three months and then I never give it to them because I keep not being satisfied that it's done. So I guess it's not done. <laughs> so yeah, like where are you with it right now? Right now? Another three months? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I think maybe I shouldn't make any more promises to anybody ever. So my, uh, my friend Matt Bell has a theory that that all that actually exists of it is just the parts of it that I've published and I'm just lying about the rest. There's no, there's no other pages. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, you've been to Haiti. Like, you have an interest in Haiti. Yeah, yeah. I, I spent parts of uh, about five summers there. and For a while, I was going down whenever I had a like a break with work or whatever. When did, um, this, when did this start? I had been down for a couple of years. Well, it started because I knew this guy who was a film director, and he said he wanted to make a film down there. And I had been reading Edward Stantecott, um, and was a fan and excited about her books, especially um, this, this novel and story she wrote called The Dewbreaker. So I, you know, when he asked if I wanted to go down and, and look around and start working on something, I started reading real heavily in Haitian history and literature and stuff and, and pre preparation. 
And then the whole thing fell through, and he didn't even go meet me there. But I already had a plane ticket, so I just started looking around for for anybody that could, you know, take care of me when I was down there. I mean, I had the sense that I didn't know the place, and I needed some kind of points of connection if I was going to go down. And I found some, and and uh, and I ended up um, in this village in uh, the West Province in the mountains south of uh, Port-au-Prince, and I just kept going back to the same place after that and getting to know people and uh, sort of learning learning uh, about, you know, how people lived there and, and who they were. And I really just spent most of my time walking around talking to people. And uh, and really, if I hadn't, if I hadn't had children and, and those obligations at that point, I might have just moved down there because I, I was always so happy there. Um, but, but that's kind of how it got started. And, and now is, is, uh, Haiti, does Haiti figure into the sexual lives of missionaries? Yeah, it's set there. Oh, it is. Okay. It's set in a, it's set in a, in a place that also appears in praying drunk called Kulafil, which is a village that's, uh, modeled in part on the Baptist mission in Fairmont, Haiti, which is a old colonialist enterprise, you know? Um, I mean, the history of Haiti is just a history of like, people uh, overcoming the crushes of power again and again. I mean, it, it's the only slave revolution that ever took. Um, you know, the Haitians turned back uh, Napoleon's Navy, and if they hadn't, then, uh, you know, a third of America at least would be French now. Um, I mean, the Louisiana Purchase happened in the wake of that. Uh, Jefferson leveraged it, so you can thank Haiti for that, too. Hmm. And then, you know, uh, the French always wanted reparations and the Americans were always invading. And, uh, and that's, and that's the history of the place. But yet, um, if you go down there, it's a, it's a vibrant place. People are smart and making lives for themselves, often under very difficult conditions in, uh, really enterprising ways. I mean, I remember one time I needed some internet. I was in a village I didn't know. And this guy said, Oh, I know a place we can go. And he took us down to a house where a guy had put a satellite dish on the roof of his house, the corrugated tin roof made of tin scraps. It was a dirt floor, and he had run barbed wire um, to an electrical line four miles away on stakes raised off the ground by about three feet. And he had an Internet business there, you know? Dear God. (laughs) It sounds sounds unsafe. It sounds unsafe. (laughs) Well, it was terribly unsafe. I mean, you shouldn't touch the wire. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I was going to say that wire. But I mean, you know, I was glad it was there, and so was everybody else in the in the in the village. And also, they could go there and charge their cell phones, and I charged mine, and and I've never been happier to see a business at yeah. that moment. <laughs> sure. Okay, so uh, you said you had points of contact down there, and you had people that helped you sort of get networked, so that when you were on the ground, you would know where to go, and you know, you would have someone to show you around. So. Who helped you? Well, uh, the first person I met was a former uh, director of an orphanage and uh, a couple. And so uh, they had uh, they had sort of uh, built... They were, uh, he was from Mississippi and she's from northern Indiana. And they had gone down kind of naively, you know, and, and started an orphanage when they were in their 20s. And then eventually they just turned it over to some of the kids that they'd raised, and now the orphanage was just run by um, Haitians. So after I got comfortable 
you know, and going down and I and I knew enough people who knew English who who I knew cared about me and wouldn't let me, you know, flounder too much. Um, I just started going down and so sometimes I'd be the only American um in the village uh when I went down. Um and, and it was fine, you know, I mean, um everybody just kind of uh took care of me and I, I never I I mean I would pay I would pay my lodging when I went down, but it wasn't very much. And I always got the sense that everybody knew I didn't have that much money and I was trying to finance it myself and make it work. And they knew I was a writer and they just helped me, you know? Um, and that was it. And nobody really asked me for much in return. And I didn't, I didn't really have really anything particularly to give. I mean, it's not like I knew how to build a house or do anything, you know? I just uh I just went down and lived among people who are becoming my friends and and we swapped stories and that was it. You still keep in touch? Yeah, here and there and uh of course, you know, I'm looking for a time on my calendar that I can go down again because you know, there there's children now that were very small that are now like big. Some are some of them are in college in the United States now. Um some of them, you know, will never go to college. Um, some, some will move away. Some will stay. Um, I like to, I like to find out what happened. Now I'm interested. Sure. Well, and okay. And so you, uh, just to shift gears before I let you go, um, you now yeah. have this. You have this new collection out. Um, you're getting. You know, you're on a book tour, and I know you're under the weather too. So I, I want listeners to know that this is a heroic effort you're making to talk to me for an hour. <laughs> Well, I'm all doped up, so it's okay. <laughs> Which is exactly how I like my guests to be. But uh, so <laughs> that's why I'm telling you much. Yeah, right. Where where did you uh, where are you going to go on your tour? Uh, everywhere, really. I mean, uh, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest. Uh, this week I'm going to Provo, Utah. Provo. Uh, last week I was in Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, I, have a, I have a friend who teaches at BYU, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go down there and uh, and see what that's like. I spent a night in Provo, like years and years and years ago, when I was in college, like uh, on a road trip, and just like we stopped there. It was it was uh, I remember it being an unusual hotel. Uh, yeah, I can't say much more than that. Like we got there late and left early, but I had to sign a form that said I wouldn't curse or take the Lord's name in vain or. Uh, <laughs> You're like, what is this, third you know, grade again? What's happening? Well, I mean, it rules out almost all of my stories, so I'm going to have to be real careful because <laughs> I don't want to get the people who brought me in in trouble. <laughs> you can just, like, you need to somehow uh, on your uh, cell phone, like, have a recording of a, a beeping sound. You can just beep, you know, you can bleep yourself as you're reading your own work. <laughs> no, I'm going to be I'm gonna be on my best behavior, I think. So, but you know, Provo, not exactly like a normal stop on a, on a book tour, at least with the authors that I've been speaking with on this show, but you're going to go there. You're going to do what? San Francisco. You coming to Los Angeles? Doing, uh, yeah, I'm coming to Los Angeles in March. Uh, West coast. I'm doing Los Angeles, San Diego, Portland, Seattle twice. I've already done Seattle once. Uh, I'm doing a, I'm doing a book launch in Brooklyn. Um, I'm doing, uh, they're doing a cool thing in Madison, uh, at the Madison Public Library. They're doing Nightlight Friday. They're going to have like a rave and a, and the bands and the reading and food and stuff. 
Um, they're doing a speakeasy party in Iowa City. Uh, next time I go to Seattle, they're doing a Roaring Twenties party at the Pike Place Market. Dear God, um, this is this sounds like a bacchanal. Like I've never heard of a rave and a reading mixed together. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's the book's got drunk in the title, so everywhere I go, people are pushing shots on me and stuff. And <laughs> trying to trying to avoid it because I want to, you know, I want to stay upright. Well, you're like, dude, I've got strep throat and you know three kinds of the flu because <laughs> everyone's giving me tequila everywhere I go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to, uh, my rule is I'm, I'm limiting myself to half a drink per city. Well, I mean, that's, I think that's enough to be polite. Just enough to be, yeah. I mean, and you're sticking to that. I'm going to try to now Brooklyn might be another thing. (laughs) Brooklyn always turns into another thing, you know? Sure. Well, you have a lot of friends there, I would imagine, right? Because it's such a publishing hub. You've got to know a lot of writers who live up, up that way. Yeah, every everybody who's not uh, like married and with children like me ends up there. Everybody who can live on a shoestring, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I wish you well on the tour, and I wish you well with this book. It's been really interesting and fun talking with you, and uh, we'll be very interested to see, uh, you know, what happens with your novel when it finally, uh, you know, finishes. Thank you. All right, folks, there you have it. That is Kyle Miner. Go get his story collection. It's called Praying Drunk, and it's available now from Saraband Books. You can find Kyle on the web at kyleminer.com. He's on the Facebook, and he's also on the Twitter, where his handle is at Kyle underscore Miner. Thanks again to Squarespace, today's sponsor. Be sure to visit squarespace.com. Start a trial. Check it out. When you do that, don't forget to enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE and you get 10% off. Thanks as well to Kill Rockstars. For all the great music, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this program and to access the full archives. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. And here's how it works. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? Here's what you do. You get the app. It's free. It's on your phone or your iPad or whatever. And then... You don't have to do anything. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And uh, best of all, you can go premium. What does that mean? Uh, Well, when you go premium, you get access to the show's full archives. All 249 some odd episodes, including my conversations with writers like George Saunders, Sam Lipside, Cheryl Strayed, Kate Zambrino, Tao Lin, Jess Walter, Darren Strauss, you name it. Uh, You get access to all of that for only $2 a month. It's a great way to support the show and to make sure that I can eat something, some healthy food, locally sourced. So you get the app, it's free, you sign up for premium right there within the app, and then you get access to everything, every single episode, whenever you want it. Okay? So please go get the app. That would, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. And then from there, sign up for premium. That would be especially appreciated. All right? That's my pitch. Otherwise, otherwise, uh, co-branding? That whole thing? Listen, I realize it's inevitable. I'm not trying to be ridiculous. I know that it's not all bad. I understand this. I'm aware. I'm just saying that sometimes I notice it in a not-so-pleasant way. I get a not-so-fresh feeling. (laughs) It can seem a little transparent. People can sometimes seem opportunistic to me. And it can make me want to uh, headbutt my computer screen. You ever have that feeling where you just want to headbutt your computer screen? Please remember that Flaubert... Flaubert, Flaubert, please remember that Flaubert died of what was probably a stroke and that Thomas Hardy wrote a carefully sanitized third-person biography of himself and left it behind so that his widow could pretend that she herself had authored it. That is it for now. Thanks again to Kyle Miner. 
Thanks to Saraban Books. Thanks to you. Thank you to you, my listeners, without whom, let's face it, this would be an extraordinarily sad exercise in failed communication. I'll be back in just a few days. You know that. And I'll have another episode here uh, for you. You can listen to it. You can ingest it. I will be co-branding with another with a, another writerly, bookish person, leeching from their vital life force in a brazen and stunningly naked attempt to advance my own set of interests. <laughs>